I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the passage that Sean read, Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. We all remember during COVID days when the governments, most of them state governments, shut down certain businesses, told people they weren't able to go to work. They made these distinctions between which workers and which companies were essential and which were not. Um, Not very good memories for us. Uh, They picked and chose which companies and individuals could work and um, how they made their decisions, perhaps we'll never know. But the question is, what if the church, what if this local church or any local church had to determine which positions in the church were essential and which were not? Of course, it really comes down to how one defines essential, right? But let's say which, which positions were essential according to the New Testament and which were not. Because when we come to the New Testament, there are really only two positions, or we call them offices in the church, that are essential. Um, Of course, if the church gets rid of its music director, their pianist, or their Sunday school teachers, or their audio video technicians, or their nursery workers, or, or many other positions in a church, obviously the ministry would change dramatically. Things wouldn't be the same. We'd have to change the way we did things. But really what's laid out in the New Testament is that there are two essential positions in any local church, and they are the elder, pastor, and the deacon. We've been studying biblical church leadership for the past few months. Of course, we've had a couple of delays here, but the focus of our study up to this point has been on elders, and the relationship of the congregation to the elders. And all of those sermons that I preached on this, um, they're all on our website, or on Sermon Audio, and and if you've missed those and want to catch up on them, you can go online and listen to those. But this week, we're going to turn our attention to the other New Testament church office, deacons. And and before we really get started, I just want to, to say that Many years ago, when I first came here, maybe, maybe about a decade ago, um, you know, I, I started pointing out that there's a difference between what's biblical and what's traditional. Tradition isn't necessarily bad, nor is it necessarily good. But tradition isn't scripture, and scripture isn't tradition. And so as we, as we go into this study, especially, I mean, it's, it's been that way with elders as well, but, 
But when we go and start talking about deacons, um, probably everybody here this morning who's listening has an idea, okay, I know what deacons are, I know what deacons do, and basically it's based upon your experience, your, your life experience, what churches you've been a part of, what you've seen deacons do and not do. And um, I'll also say this, as we look into the scripture, what we're going to find out is that scripture doesn't have a whole lot to say about deacons. Elders, there's a lot of material. Deacons, there's no material at all. And so we do have to be, I think, very gracious with people, um, one another, other churches, as far as how they apply this office of deacons to their own church. But um, I just wanted to say all that before we get into this, that um, we're trying to look at the scriptures and make some make some observations and, and, and later on some applications. But the first thing I'll call to your attention is, is the New Testament usage of this word deacon. You, you may know that the, the Greek word is diakonos. This word diakonos appears 29 times in the New Testament, and it's rarely translated deacon. It's usually translated servant or minister. The corresponding noun um, is used 34 times and it, it describes a, a ministry or ministries is usually how it's defined. And then the verb diakoneo is used 37 times and it's, it's generally um, translated to serve. Or to minister. Um, so diakonos is, is usually just the generic term for servant. And it's used many different ways in the New Testament. And the verb form means to serve. So let me just read some examples of, of how this uh, word is used. Jesus speaks of himself as this kind of servant. He says in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Son of Man came not to, not to be deaconed to, but to deacon. That's the word used there. And Jesus used this word to speak of his followers in Matthew 23, 11, and 12. He says, The greatest among you shall be your servant, your deacon. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Again, Jesus says in John 12, 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. All of these words translated serve are these words that are translated deacon, or a verb form of that word. Paul uses it of human government. In Romans 13, 4, he says, For he is God's servant. He is God's deacon for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant, the deacon of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And interestingly enough, Paul also uses it when he speaks of spiritual beings who serve Satan. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 and 15, 
And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his deacons, his servants, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. I'm assuming this is where Wake Forest came up with the name Demon Deacons. (laughs) I'm not sure. But these two passages along with these first few verses of Acts, teach us that the deacon, in addition to the elder, is a formal office in the local church. These two passages that we're going to look at. Um, Because diakonos is translated deacon only five times in the ESV. And four of those times we find in 1 Timothy 3, where the qualifications of those who hold the office of deacon are given. And the other time is in Paul's greeting to the church at Philippi, when he greets the overseers and the deacons. So a deacon is primarily a servant. He's the one who serves or ministers to others. And although there is much less revealed to us in the scriptures concerning the office and duty of deacons than there is considering elders, there's much to consider as we attempt to understand the office of deacon and apply it to our church. So just so you know where we're going this morning um, and into next week as well, and we're going to take a quick overview of how deacons have functioned in the church throughout history. And and then we're going to look at this account in Acts 6, which most believe is the first mention of the office of deacon. Then we'll examine the qualification of deacons and briefly look at how deacons are functioning in churches in our day. And we'll conclude with some, some practical applications. But the overwhelming truth that we'll see in Scripture as we encounter um, this idea, this concept of deacons, is that they are essential servants who are necessary to the efficient functioning of a local church. So if you'll just listen as I I give you just a history of of deacons in the church, a brief history, um, because of course the church has 2,000 years of, of history. Um, So we're going to cover 2,000 years in about seven minutes. Very, very brief. So just, I think it'll help us um, if you can stay awake for the next seven minutes with a history lesson. I think it'll help us in in our trying to understand um, this idea of deacons. So the historian Charles DeWeese summarizes the work of deacons in the early centuries of the church. And this is what he says. He says, they visited martyrs who were in prison. They clothed and buried the dead. They looked after the excommunicated with the hope of restoring them, provided for the needs of widows and orphans, and visited the sick and those who were otherwise in distress. In a plague that struck Alexandria about A.D. 259, deacons were described by an eyewitness as those who visited the sick fearlessly, ministered to them continually, and died with them most joyfully. Early church history shows us that deacons were committed defenders of the faith, 
Matt Smethurst, in his book on deacons, gives some examples. He writes the following. Let's travel to ancient Rome, epicenter of the mightiest empire on earth. Only eight years have passed since Emperor Decius sought to exterminate all who refused to pledge allegiance to his sovereign rule. Untold numbers of Christians were killed. It's now A.D. 258, and a man named Lawrence is one of the seven deacons serving in Rome. His task is to oversee the church's money and distributions to the poor. In August, the news hits. Decius' successor, Valerian, has issued a chilling edict. All bishops, priests, and deacons must be rounded up and killed. Lawrence is soon taken before the magistrate. The offer, surrender the treasure of the church and you will be freed. The deacon agrees. He only requests three days to retrieve it. Leaving the court, Lawrence wastes no time. He entrusts the church's money to safe hands and then gathers together the sick, the aged, the poor, the widowed, and the orphaned. At last, he returns to the court, pitiful band in tow. Incensed by the commotion, the magistrate demands an explanation. Lawrence responds, Sir, I have brought what you asked for. Then, gesturing toward the people he's gathered, he declares, These are the treasures of the church. Subsequently, sentenced to a martyr's death, the deacon endures the flames with startling calm, even quipping to his executioners, You may turn me over. I am done on this side. The spectacle of Lawrence's profound courage makes a great impression on the people of Rome, leading to many conversions. He also writes, As the church sought to manage geographical expansion and as various heresies popped up to threaten the faith, a formalized hierarchy was developed to streamline and centralize decision-making authority within the office of bishop. We talked about this a little bit when we were studying about elders. So rather than only two church offices, bishops or elders and deacons, there were now three. There were bishops, overseers, there were presbyters who were elders or priests, and deacons. And with the advent of this monarchical episcopate system, one bishop overseeing a geographical area, the primary role of deacons shifted from agents of charity to essentially secretaries to the bishops. They increasingly function as on-the-ground liaisons between the region's bishop and its local congregations. So you see what's happening here. As the church changed over the years, it became more formalized, it became more hierarchical in, in, in how it was administered with bishops over certain areas, with the elders underneath them. The same thing happened with the deacons. And, and there was this gradual distancing from the New Testament pattern. Deacons continued to perform some biblical task, but it didn't hold. Uh, Mark Dever, in a book he wrote, he summarizes this fateful decline. He says, as the monarchical episcopate developed, so did a kind of monarchical diaconate beneath it. As the role of bishop developed, so did the role of archdeacon. 
The archdeacon was the chief deacon of a particular place and might be described as a deputy concerned with material matters. Abuses eventually crept into the office of deacon, and deacons, especially archdeacons, became quite wealthy. How ironic that those who were meant to serve others instead used others to serve their own desires. With this shift away from charitable work, two developments in the Middle Ages caused the diaconate to deteriorate even further. First, the office was reduced to a mere stepping stone to the priesthood. Second, the more concerning, charitable charitable giving came to be viewed as a means of saving one's soul and lessening another's time in purgatory. So by the Middle Ages, Cornelius Van Dem laments, the chief motive for giving to the poor was to gain entrance to eternal life. And the tragic downward spiral was complete, it seemed, as deacons soon ceased to function in any biblical way, and the time had come for a diaconal reformation. And as the Reformation changed many things, you know, with Luther in his message of um, salvation by grace through faith um, alone, you know, John Calvin and other reformers, they, they restored the office of deacon to a, to a more biblical scriptural model. So we're talking 500 years ago that things started to change. And, and, and since, the, since the Reformation, um, as far as the Protestant churches are concerned, um, you know, the deacons have, have pretty much been established as to where they are. In the Presbyterian and Reformed churches, deacons have functioned mainly as ministers of mercy, caring for the needy and often helping oversee the, the finances of the church. In Anglican churches, it's different. Deacons are usually transitional and vocational. They're appointed for life. And they're theologically trained. They're formally ordained. In fact, every Anglican priest or bishop begins as a deacon. So it is more like a a stepping stone. And in many congregational and baptistic churches, a, a model of plurality of elders and deacons, the elders devoted to the spiritual oversight and the deacons to practical service, largely endured until the early 20th century, so about 100 years ago. At that time, many congregations began favoring a solo pastor and a deacon board model, often accompanied by an array of committees. Okay, we're sounding more familiar now, huh? And in more recent years, there does seem to be a movement away from um, such churches to to replace this executive board of deacons and um, go back to what um, a more historic vision of of what deacons did. And in this approach, deacons coordinate various ministries in the church as a means of supporting the elders. So again, just very brief, but that's, that's basically what the history of deacons has gone through over these last 2,000 years, and, and, and it's going to be different in your different denominations. But I, I want to point out here really what I, I titled um, insufficient models of a deacon. And, and this is, um, these are taken out of, out of this, this book by 
um, Smethurst that I mentioned. And, and the first one is, is that some churches look at deacons as an elder in training. Kind of like a, a deacon is kind of like he, he, he's on training wheels. Someday he's going to get off the training wheels and, and be an elder. And the thing is, is this is a wrong view, okay? Because the qualifications for both offices of elder and deacon are similar, um, but they're not the same. And the roles are different. And oftentimes, those who are gifted for one office are not necessarily gifted for the other. So just because somebody's a, a deacon, it doesn't mean he's going to be an elder one day. Another thing, churches, I make a lot of mistakes, is, is they're, they're looking for a handyman. Um, it's like, okay, well, we need, a, we need a new deacon. How well does he know his way around Lowe's? Right? Well, well, the question is, does he know his way around the Bible? How well does he know his way around the Bible? Um, in, in this question, is he a mature believer? Or, or you know, we need deacons. In, well, it, is he a financial wizard? I mean, he, here's a guy and he, he, he's, you know, he works with investments. He helps people invest their money for their retirement and such. And, and he does a really good job. And, and it's great to have men in the church who are good with finances, but that doesn't mean they're qualified to be a deacon. Again, the question is, is he a mature believer? Because that's what we're going to see as we look into the scriptures. Or, or here's another one. Is he a successful businessman? He, he's grown a successful business. He's got dozens of employees. He, he's shown that he can make wise business decisions. Well, does the church need to make wise business decisions? Does the church need to, to, to be careful with their finances? Of course. But just because he's a successful businessman, does that mean he's, he's qualified to be a deacon? No. Oh, here, here's another one. A contrarian to keep the pastor in check. I mean, you don't want, you don't want just yes men, right? Yes, sir. Yes, pastor. Yes. Okay, let's do that. Yeah. Yes. No. Um, well, you know, someone has to keep the pastor grounded. We need to get a contrarian in there so he can, he can keep the pastor in place. Um, well, that's definitely not scriptural. And, and here's the last one, a, a pseudo-elder. Uh, let me read a quote here. He says, When deacons start to function either as leading shepherds over the whole congregation or as a board of directors overseeing various staffs and committees, the Bible's job description for deacons has become blurred. Further, any structure that encourages deacons to function as a counterweight to the pastor or elders, a second house of legislature to check and balance pastoral decisions, has overstepped its biblical bounds. Though this may not have the intention, far too often, far too often it is the effect. In you know, I mean, I don't. Some of you have probably been in churches like this, where it's it's a it's a church run by the deacon board. The deacons are exalted to a place where they are they are the ones that make the decision. The 
you know, they, basically in everything. Um, I, I have friends who were run out of churches. Um, they got into a church where they were pastoring, and the deacon board, they were the ones running the church. They were the ones making the decisions, and if they didn't like what the pastor said or was doing, or if he wouldn't do what they wanted him to do, they would just, basically what they usually do is starve him out. They stopped giving. Oh, there's no money to pay you, pastor. And eventually, of course, pastor. But, but this is not the biblical Uh, One last quote here from Smith. He says, Deacons are not the church's spiritual council of directors, nor the executive board to whom the pastor's CEO answers. They are the cavalry of servants deputized to execute the elders' vision by coordinating various ministries. Deacons are like a congregation's special ops force carrying out unseen assignments with fortitude and joy. If you want to find a qualified deacon, don't look at his garage to see how many tools he has. Don't look at his financial portfolio to see how many investments he has. Don't look at his company to see how many employees he has. Look first at his attitude, his character, his life. Is he eager to listen or is he angling to be heard? Is he humble and flexible or does he always insist on his way? Does he covet status or does he yearn to serve? End of quote. So, so as we move on from, from this brief history of deacons and, and this, these unbiblical models of how deacons function, we must remember we must remember that the meaning of the word translated deacon is what? Servant. And servants are called to serve. So here in Acts 6, we have an event recorded which which most interpreters believe is the first mention of deacons in the New Testament. If not the first mention of deacons, at least the forerunners of the office of deacon. And because the passage doesn't specifically call these appointed men deacons. However, it does use the form of the word for deacon, the verb form, and it appears that these were the first deacons in the New Testament church. And it's possible, and I I believe probable, that the office of deacon was initiated at this time in Jerusalem and over the course of the next several years was developed into the established office of deacon with qualifications that Paul would eventually set forth in 1 Timothy 3. So, so let's look at this account in Acts 6 of the first deacons. And the first thing we see here is the occasion of the need for the deacons. I think most of you are familiar with this passage. Um, there was a problem that involved the, the Hellenist widows in the church who were being neglected. Um, They were being overlooked. These were the Jews. The Hellenists were the Jews who spoke Greek. And the apostles called the congregation together because the the Hebrew widows apparently were being taken care of. Their needs were being met, their financial needs, their, their need for food and clothing and shelter and such. And the, and the Greek ones, the Hellenist ones, were, were being overlooked. So the apostle calls the congregation together. 
right? Look at what it says in verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. So they get the, the, all of the congregation together there in Jerusalem. And they tell them it's not pleasing. It's not agreeable that we should spend our time. Look what it says there in verse 2. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to deacon tables. To serve tables. In other words, it's not right that we should give up the spiritual work that we're doing, the, the, the preaching and teaching of the word of God and prayer, in order that, that we should be involved in, in serving tables or distributing food, is what they were talking about, right? And the reason is, as he makes clearly here, is because they need to devote their time and attention to the ministry of the word of God and prayer. So we see here that the first deacons were called into service in order to relieve those in the church who were responsible for the spiritual oversight and shepherding of the church in Jerusalem so that they could give their time and energy to the ministry of the word and to prayer. You know, Satan, obviously, is is always trying to hinder the work of God. He's always trying to stop God's work, the work of his spirit, salvation of souls, the, the maturing of believers into Christ-likeness. He's, he's always trying to stop that. In fact, you go back and you read Acts chapter 4, right? And, and what's going on there? Satanic persecution from outside the church is coming in. And, and, and trying to stop the spread of the gospel. You get to chapter 5, and, and you have Ananias and Sapphira. And here you have people within the church, and Satan is attacking the church through, through this moral corruption in the church from those who are professing to, to know Christ. And now we come to chapter 6, and what we see is, is really one of Satan's greatest tools that he he used and he still uses today and that is to hinder the work of God by distracting the spiritual leaders of the church from what God has called them to do but what we see here is that God gave the apostles great wisdom in how to handle this distraction and he not he not only gave them great wisdom in how to handle the distraction that they had for that particular time but but really he he gives them wisdom so they're able to not only help those affected at that time but but allows them to continue to focus on the work that God has called them and the needs of the widows were it's not that they weren't important they were important they they needed to be addressed But they needed to be addressed in a way that did not distract the spiritual leaders of the church from the spiritual work that God had called them to. So by prioritizing scripture and prayer, the apostles are choosing to stay focused on the whole church's spiritual welfare, even as they confirm these Hellenist widows' need. In fact, they they not only affirm their needs, but but they take the initiative to set in motion this 
permanent structural solution. Because what they proposed here and what they established here wasn't just for Jerusalem in, in the early church. It's a permanent solution. It, it's one that, that's still here for us today, 2,000 years later in the church. And these, the apostles, they recognize this, this fundamental truth. And I believe I put this quote in, in the bulletin. A church whose ministers are chained, chained to, to the tyranny of the urgent, which so often shows up in tangible problems, is a church removing its heart to strengthen its arm. It's a kind of slow motion suicide. A church without deacons may lack health, but a church without biblical preaching cannot exist. There is, in fact, no such thing. As the New Testament unfolds and more churches are established, the, the role of elders will come to be described similarly to that of the apostles. It's not to suggest that elders are equivalent to apostles. No, there are many important differences. But still, there's evident correlation between both apostles and elders and between these seven in Acts chapter 6 and deacons. So here, here we have this, this, this initial revelation here concerning deacons. And, and I want you to note here that, that the whole congregation is involved in this solution, right? The whole congregation is involved. Remember, he... he, he they call the full number of disciples. All of the believers are here. And there's this role of the congregation in, in choosing the deacons. They give them instruction. They say, carefully is the idea there. When he says, pick out, therefore brothers, pick out, carefully select seven men to take care of this problem, to, to meet the needs of, of these these." Hellenist widows. So the, the congregation is responsible to, to choose who these seven men are going to be. Um, but note also there to be men of the congregation. He says, he, he says um, to choose them, pick out from among you. Okay, so they're not, they're not bringing in outsiders. They're, they're picking them from, them from the congregation themselves. And yet there are qualifications, right? They have to be qualified men. It's not just any seven men. It's not a popularity contest, right? It's not, it's not okay, who, who's gifted most in these areas? There are specific qualifications given by the apostles. They're giving them spiritual direction, right? This is, this is what the apostles did in which was passed on to, to the elders, the pastors, the overseers. They're giving them spiritual direction. They're saying, you need to choose seven men who can take care of this, but here are some qualifications. And they're laid out there, right? First is they have to be of good repute. They have to be respectable. They have to have a good testimony. These men need to be known for their, for their good character and their conduct. They need to be full of the Spirit. In other words, and we know what that means because it's explained to us further in, in the epistles, right? 
We know exactly what it means. It, it means to be controlled by the Spirit of God. It means to be submissive to the Spirit of God in, in their daily living. That the Spirit is controlling their, the way they live. And then finally, full of wisdom. Um, there, this is just the general Greek word for wisdom. And, and in context, it, it's speaking of proper intelligence. And, and discernment and being able to ad- administrate with practical wisdom to take care of this, this temporal matter. So they give them these qualifications. A good testimony without control by the Spirit of God. They have to have wisdom. And, and this is what the congregation is to do. And you also see in here the, the role of the apostles. They're, they're appointed by them. And he, he, they say, uh, pick out from among you seven men of good report, full of spirit, and, of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So after the congregation chooses these seven men, what the elders are going to do is they're going to appoint, they're going to constitute these men as appointed servants or deacons to meet the needs of these widows and those involved in this. And in verse 6, we see what they did at the end here is they, they prayed for them. Are chosen by the congregation. They're appointed, prayed for, and set apart for service by the apostles. And note the results. In verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase and laid their hands on them. The disciples multiplied greatly and the great priests became obedient to the faith. So, so speaking up of those in spiritual leadership, in this case the apostles, brought continued growth to the church. They had this distraction they dealt with it as God gave them wisdom and, and it took care of the problem and they were able to, to continue on ministering. But, but I want also to point out here the spiritual maturity of these first deacons. Because we keep reading right in the very next verse and in verse 8 and all the way down through end of chapter 7 and, and, and it's all about whom? Who? Stephen, Right? It's all about Stephen, one of the deacons, one of these men appointed. And and Stephen is a man, it says, who was full of faith and power. And he preached the gospel with with great conviction. So much that his audience turned on him and stoned him. And he became the first Christian martyr. And then you come to chapter 8, and here's another deacon. Philip, right? And, And... This chapter 8 is completely given over to recording the evangelistic ministry of this man, Philip, who later became known as Philip the Evangelist. So these were spiritually mature men. But there's something else going on here in Acts 6, these first few verses, that that we don't want to miss. In verse 1, let's look at it again. It says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint 
by the help arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. A complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews. A complaint. That's the same word translated grumbling in Philippians 2.14 where Paul says, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Same word. Do all things without complaining. Now the widows needed to be cared for. Undoubtedly there was some injustice being done here that needed to be corrected. Whether it was intentional, we don't really know, but there was a complaint, there was grumbling. So let, let's, let's think, you know, let's go back. Okay, what's going on here? The, the gospel hasn't even gone out to, to the Gentiles yet, right? These are all Jews. But you've got two groups. You've got the Hellenists and you've got the Hebrews. Um, and some of them, the Hebrews, you know, for the most part, they were from Jerusalem and Israel. Um, they were Hebrew in their culture and their language and their thinking. And others were Greek. Many of them, remember, had come from different locations. Go back to chapter 2 at Pentecost. They were still there. They're, they were part of the church. Some of them went back. We know that. But, but some of them stayed there. There was no church to go to in another city, right? They couldn't go back to their own country and... There's no church there. There's, there's no teaching. So, so you've got these two groups here of these Hebrews and these, these Greek Jews. And, and, and there was a potential at this point in the church for, for a great schism, for, for a great division to take place between these two groups of people. So the first deacons, they not only dealt they didn't only deal with the logistics of making sure that the Hellenist widows received their fair share of help, but they were also involved in, in squelching the division and promoting unity in the church. Because the deacons were called to serve the whole church. And if you look through the names of these seven deacons, you'll note that for the most part, they're Greek names. They're Greek names. The church didn't select seven men based upon their own personal preferences. Rather, they followed the apostles' instructions to choose men based upon these certain qualifications. And this brought God's continued blessing on the church. We have to understand deacons are essential servants in the local church. And, and we'll look at this, Lord willing, more next week. But I, I put a conclusion there for you, um, and I'll just read it, and, and we'll say a couple more things finishing up here. But deacons are essential servants in the local church who are godly men whose primary calling is to alleviate the elders of tasks that can be done by others who are not elders so that the elders can focus their attention on the spiritual work, primarily the study, teaching, and preaching of the word of God and prayer. The deacons serve by taking care of the physical needs of the church in such a way that it heals division, brings unity, and supports the leadership of the elders. 
Elders need, not deacons, deacons serve practically elders to lead. And really, you know, we're going to look at it more. We're going to look at the qualifications of deacons in, in 1 Timothy 3, uh, the activity of deacons, the, the reward of deacons. We're going to look at all this, Lord willing, next week and finish up this, this section on deacons. But, but this is my understanding of what the New Testament teaches about deacons. They're servants. It, it, elders are servants too, right? We, we've already established that. But deacons are servants, and their primary, primary purpose is to alleviate the spiritual leaders of the church, the elders of the church, so that they can focus on, on the spiritual needs of the church by the deacons taking care of those things that are more material. But it's, it's, not, it's not just taking care of the material needs. It's also promoting this, this unity. You know, and, and we could say this, put, putting out some of the fires that, that crop up in churches, because they always do, Right? Because there are people, there are always going to be complaints. Regardless, we're told to do all things without grumbling, without complaining. There are going to be complaints. And, and some of them are legitimate. Some of them are legitimate. And, and um, deacons can really do a lot of good in protecting the church and helping the church. Um, one of the things that we'll, we'll focus more on next week, but I'll just mention in conclusion here, is that we, we already read some verses where, where Jesus said that he is a servant, right? And we know both, both, both words for servant and doulos, slave, Jesus uses, both of those words are used of Jesus. But, but focus in here a minute on, on he's, a, he's a deacon, He's a servant. And, and he, he came to this world. He came to earth to serve. He said, I came not to be served. I came not to be ministered to, but to serve, to minister. The word's deacon there. It's an example for all deacons. He came, he gave his own life, he shed his own blood on the cross of Calvary to serve and to provide salvation for those who believe on him. And, of course, the glorious gospel. If you have never received Christ as Savior, if you've never recognized him for who he is as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings who came to this earth to provide salvation for you by dying in your place for your sins, then, of course, the, the invitation goes out to you from Christ himself, to come unto him, to receive him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you've never received Christ, come to him and, and receive him as your Savior today. But for those of you who would be deacons, remember, he's your example. 
Because being a deacon takes sacrifice, just like being an elder does. It takes sacrifice. It's, it's saying, you know what? I'm going to serve the church. I'm going to be a servant of the church. I am going to be a deacon, and I am going to, to work to, to alleviate the spiritual the elders of the church. I'm going to work to alleviate them from some of this work that I can take care of, that I can coordinate, that I can supervise to make sure these things are taken care of so that the elders can meet the spiritual needs and put their attention on the ministry of the word and prayer. And it's all, it's really a reflection of Christ, the servant, the one who came to serve and not to be served. So, again, you know, I don't know your background and what you have been taught or what your ideas have been about deacons, but this was the first half of this message. I realized quite early I wasn't going to get through it all in one day. So, Lord willing, we'll finish this next week, but, but um, I would encourage you to go ahead and you know, do some more study here in Acts 6 and, and even be looking at 1 Timothy 3, the qualifications for deacons. Um, and um, we'll go forward as we seek to um, try to understand what the scriptures say and, and how we might apply it as a local church regarding deacons. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can open it this morning and just pray that it it's been profitable for those who have heard this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to encourage us and help us in the study of your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.